Welcome to the Didache Divine Service, session number four. You should have your white sheet. Remember that salmon-colored uh, harder copy is the communion liturgy that we use every week, and you may drop that off. It's, it's available to you if you, if you need it. Uh, many of you know that by heart, so if you don't need it, that's fine. But if you do, you have it, and you can leave that at the board. There will always be a white uh, sec, uh, sheet each week that gives the outline of what we're doing. We are still in lesson two, even as today we focus on the fifth and the sixth commandments. And so we will follow the outline. The hymn is the Ten Commandments hymn, 581, stanzas 1, 6 and 7, and then 11 and 12. Stanzas 1, 6 and 7, and 11 and 12. Let us begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Almighty God, whose compassion never fails, and who invites us to call upon you in prayer, hear the heartfelt confession of our sins and receive our humble supplication for your mercy. Spare us from the just punishment of sin which our Lord Jesus Christ has borne for us and enable us to serve you in holiness and purity of life. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Hymn 581, stanzas 1, 6 and 7, 11 and 12. These are the Last week in our session three, we focused on 
the reading from Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus spoke of not coming to destroy the law and the prophets, but to fulfill. So I would encourage you to have that reading open, Matthew chapter 5. Uh, we began last week at verse 17, and we'll be looking again at that from verse 17 through verse 48 as we go into the fifth and the sixth commandments today. That is Jesus preaching in the Sermon on the Mount, and he was talking about the greater righteousness that surpasses that of the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. But before doing that, we need to review a few of our terms from previous weeks, first through the fourth commandment. So I ask you, what is it? The faith or desire to receive from God all the good things he gives in his word and sacraments, and then to return to him all glory, honor, thanksgiving, and praise. What do we call that? Worship. Worship. Good. Worship is faith. So when they fell down at Jesus' feet and worshipped him, Lord, have mercy. Son of David, have mercy. They weren't giving anything to him. They were falling down in humble faith with broken and contrite hearts. Lord, have mercy. So at the heart of worship is first the desire to receive God's good gifts in word and sacrament, his mercy and forgiveness. And then out of that, there is a return of thanksgiving and praise. Okay. Good. I return to this. I asked you this last week. To be turned away from your sins, away from reliance upon yourself, to acknowledge your sins, and to rely upon Christ for salvation. What do we call that? Repentance. Yeah. Repentance is a change of direction in terms of the faith of the heart. So rather than relying upon, I trust in myself, you think of the rich man in the parable, the rich man in Lazarus. He trusted in himself, his money, his works, his accomplishments. These are the things by which I merit God's favor. He is called to repentance. Now, in the case of the parable, he did not repent. But repentance would have been, none of that can save me at all. I'm actually a sinner. I need the mercy of God in Christ. So repentance is the change of direction in the faith of the heart. From reliance upon self, reliance upon works, to relying upon Christ and his gift of salvation. All right. What do you call the words by which God tells us who he is and by which we call upon him? The name of God. Yeah, it's a tricky definition, but they are the, the words that God uses to reveal himself to us, who he is, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Lord God, Heavenly Father. And so he reveals himself to us in the word of God, and by these 
very words that he himself reveals himself to us, we call upon him in prayer. That's second commandment language. All right. Um, For Christians, this word refers to the rest and peace which God now gives for Christ's sake through the hearing of his word and through his sacraments. Sabbath. Sabbath, right. Sabbath rest. Sabbath means rest. And for us as Christians, it's it's not chiefly about stop working. Even in the Old Testament, it really wasn't chiefly about not working, but the command not to work was so that God could do his work and you could focus on what he was doing. Okay? Good. And then we talked about three functions of the law. Can anybody name one of the three functions of the law? A mirror. A mirror. Okay, that's, that's called the spiritual function at times. The, the law mirrors or shows us our sin and how much we need our Savior. That mirroring function of the law is necessary to bring about repentance that we talked about earlier. Can you name curb? Now, a curb is sometimes called the civil function of the law, that it maintains order in society, in the home. It applies to unbelievers as well as believers in Christ. So the civil laws, the laws in the home, they're not concerned chiefly about changing the heart, but about maintaining order, guarding against the gross outbreaks of lawlessness. Okay? If you can get away with starting fires and rioting on the streets of America, if there is no enforcement of law, well, then you're going to do it. Just like a child, if the child can get away with throwing a temper tantrum, what is the child going to do? Throw a temper tantrum. Okay. And what's the other function? It applies especially... Not, uh, what did you say? A guide, a standard, a rule. It applies to Christians because we still have the sinful flesh. We need the word of God, the law, to ground us in what is right. Okay? And, and we can listen to the philosophy and rhetoric of the culture and the unbelieving world around us, and you can come to believe just about anything. In fact, sometimes the world around us is good at taking some truth from Christianity, like God is love, that's true. And and salvation is by the mercy of God in Christ, apart from any merit on our part. There's no distinction, male, female, salvation is for all. And they'll take that little gem and say, therefore... Marriage, since God is love, and there's no difference, can be between men and men and women and women, and it's coming soon, polyamory, where marriage can be any combination of individuals. Now, that's not true, but the philosophies of the world can often sound really good, and in the name of love, have you ever heard something like this? I just want them to be happy. See, so in the name of I just want them to be happy, there's the condoning of all manner of things which 
God's word in the Ten Commandments would define as sin. Okay? So we cannot confuse the gospel and the gospel's gift of salvation through the work of Christ from what God still declares and defines as good. So this third function of the law grounds us in what is right. And today we look at the fifth commandment, for example, that life is sacred and holy. But, 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 she didn't mean to get pregnant. The child won't be loved. So in the name of the love, it's more loving for the child to abort the child than to keep the child. Okay, this is, I, I'm trying to give you examples of the philosophy of the world. Or, or it was a bad marriage. So who can blame him for looking for love from his secretary at work. Don't you want him to be happy? They weren't happy in marriage in the first place, so better to end the marriage, regardless of the collateral damage done to the children or what have you. So this is the way I'm trying to give you examples of how philosophies from the world, from the sinful flesh, can often befuddle the thinking even of the most devout Christians. So the law as a guide or a standard says, no, thus says the Lord. Now what's interesting about all of those examples that I gave, whether it is the example of how to condone abortion or the example of how we just want the people to be happy, two men, two women, a couple of women and a man, that uh, we just want them to be happy, or this last example that I gave. Notice, what is governing them? It is what the will of the flesh wants. So you'll notice in the philosophies of the world, there is not too often the rhetoric of self-sacrifice for the benefit of another. Not too often is there a rhetoric of self-denial. But self-denial and sacrifice for the benefit of another is actually a closer definition of what love is than doing whatever is going to make me, myself, and I happy. Okay? And of course, we talked last week about the two tables of the law, first, second, and third. First table, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Second table of the law, which we're in right now, fourth through the Ten Commandments, our relationship to your neighbor, love your neighbor as yourself, and noted how that kind of love, the love for God above all things, even if it cost him his life, is what the Son of God, our Savior, did. And loving his neighbor in place of himself is what the Son of God, our Savior, did. So remember last week, and if you go to Matthew chapter 5 then, verse 17, do not think that I came to destroy the law and the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. And he said, not one jot or tittle will by any means pass from the law until all is fulfilled. And he says in verse 20, we looked at last week, 
I say to you, unless your righteousness exceeds, is greater, surpasses the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And the greater righteousness is the righteousness of Christ. The scribes and Pharisees thought of themselves and people of Jesus' day thought of them as the most righteous people on earth, but they still fell far short. And one of the reasons for that, among many reasons, is the motivation even for them in doing the law. For whose benefit did they do the law? For their own benefit. It wasn't to do the law to love for the benefit of the neighbor, but for what was going to accrue to them. We saw the same thing in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man was one who did what he did to amass his wealth as opposed, and to, to serve himself as opposed to serving the neighbor. All right. Now we're going to move today into the fifth and the sixth commandments. Verse 21, it, the, the rest of this section, Jesus is really addressing prevailing worldviews of the Pharisees. So, for example, you shall not murder. Say, Don, have you ever murdered anybody? No. You know, okay, now, when we ask the question that way, we're usually asking, do we ever take a knife and stab someone to death or a gun and shoot them to death? Or I guess the favored way of women to kill people is to poison them. Did you know that? So you husbands, watch out for that, you know. And the Pharisees believe this too, that the fifth commandment, you shall not murder, was really about the outward act of murder. So you're free to hate someone, despise them, wish the worst things for them, perhaps even their eternal condemnation, and you've still kept the law. So notice what Jesus says in verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, do you know what Raka means? Empty head. Like, like dumbbell. Shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, You fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Well, according to that standard, the anger and the will to condemn someone in the heart, even if you don't do anything, is murder. According to that standard, who among us is without sin? No one. In Jesus, however, you see one who, as I tried to say yesterday, a little bit in the sermon, when he preached the law, it wasn't because he wanted to damn them, like the Pharisees. When he preached the law, 
Yes, he needed to show them their sin, but he wanted to save them, to bring them to repentance, to turn them from self-reliance to reliance upon him. So in Jesus, we see one who fulfills the whole will and law of God for us. Now, going on with this reading, verse 23 says, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly while you are on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge and the judge hand you over to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. Now, in the cultural situation of Jesus' day, he's talking about the difference between living by faith in the grace of God versus living by faith in works. So you remember the parable of the, of the Pharisee and the tax collector? They come to the temple at the hour of prayer, the corporate worship. And you've got the Pharisee saying, I thank God I'm not like other men and like David over here. I do this. I fast. I do this. I do that. Unlike this tax collector, David, over here. Okay? So what is he doing? He is trying to present his works to God, the Pharisee is. Uh, we do bring offerings, don't we? But they must, this is why we talked about worship at the beginning. Worship is first and foremost the desire to receive God's good gifts, his mercy and grace. Only then can we offer our offerings, which includes our, our, our money in the collection plate and our song of praise and so forth, but not for our benefit, but in thanksgiving to God for his grace and as a confession of our faith. So you've got the... The tax collector, he beats his breast and he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Okay? Jesus says, I tell you, that man went home justified or righteous rather than the other. So in the cultural setting of Matthew 5 here, where he talks about, if you come to leave your gift and you're, you know, you're going to come and you're going to put it in the collection plate or what have you, yeah, that wretched David, you know what? I give a lot more money than he ever gave to the parking lot fund. Look, be reconciled to your brother. Now, the, the reconciliation may not be necessarily that you have to go to David. If you're harboring resentment in your heart towards someone and they're totally oblivious to it, then you go to the Lord and you confess, God, be merciful to me. On the other hand, if you have something against David... You know, I punched you out a few years ago, and I really regret that. I'm, I'm sorry. Did you know I punched him out a few years ago? No, I really didn't. But this idea of confessing your sins to one another, confessing to God, is the letting go of the desire to kill, fifth commandment, the desire to damn under the fifth commandment. Okay? So that's what Jesus is on about here. Kathy? Yes, likely the definition of worship that you would read in a dictionary is different. I have not checked it out, but a lot of Christians come out of an environment that sees worship chiefly in terms of 
our offering of something to God. And what we're trying to emphasize is what the Bible teaches is God offering to us and we receiving it by faith alone in contrition and repentance. So that's why I say in the New Testament, all of those people that fell down and worshiped Jesus, they were not bringing anything to him. They were in broken and contrite hearts, hungering and thirsting to receive his mercy, his forgiveness. Okay? Now, they did respond. You think about Mary Magdalene, out of whom Jesus cast seven demons. When Jesus rose from the dead, it's because she had received a divine service like no other. She didn't deliver herself from this demonic possession. Jesus did. And when she saw him risen from the dead and he spoke to her, Mary, she flung her arms around him. That's an act of worship, isn't it? But it begins with his divine service to her that saves her and then her response of love for him. Okay? All right, good. Now, I'm going to go ahead, since we're in this particular section, uh, let's go ahead and go on to the sixth commandment. Because in verse 21, Jesus quoted the fifth commandment. Now in verse 27, the sixth commandment. Oh, excuse me. Susan. Yeah, the, well, the judgment is judgment from God, condemnation from God. You know, in the fifth petition of the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Um, to refuse to forgive, I will not forgive them. I want them damned, is extremely dangerous spiritually because it militates against our faith in the grace of God that we don't deserve. There will be those who are damned, but that is for God to do, not for us. So the refusal to forgive puts one in mortal danger. Now, we all struggle with that uh, at times, for which the call to repentance goes out to us. Pastor? Don? I was in a church. Yeah. Yeah, we'll talk about, Don says he was in the service, thou shalt not kill, how do we deal with that? Let's, let's finish up the fifth command, or sixth commandment here, and then we'll go and take both, and you don't have to go back and forth so much, okay? Or, may, or do you want to go through the fifth commandment first? Go through the fifth, all right, let's do that then. I guess I should follow my outline, huh? Okay, page 51 Page 51 of the book, and keep your Matthew section open there, but page 51 of the book lists those terms. And if you go to the glossary in the back, you will also have uh, the definition of terms. But also on page 51 is the commandment itself and its explanation from the small catechism. So I ask you, what is the fifth commandment? You shall not murder. What does this mean? We should fear and love God so that we do not hurt or harm our neighbor in his body, but help and support him in every physical need. And you continue to see the pattern throughout 
in the explanation where there's first the negative prohibition so that we do not hurt or harm our neighbor in his body, and then the positive, but help and support him in every physical need. Under the fifth commandment, you shall not murder, what does God wish to protect? Life. Now let's take up Don's question, thou shalt not kill. The better translation here is thou shalt not murder. So if someone were to have come into your home and threatened Roseanne's life, we are given by God the right of self-defense. So you as a husband have the right to use deadly force to protect Roseanne's life. That's not murder, that's called self-defense. You follow? So also, just war is one of our terms. Just war is where the nation is being attacked or invaded and the army is marshaled to defend the nation and the citizenry and the civilians from harm. Okay? Uh, there's a whole body of material called just war theory which actually grows out of a Christian understanding that on the one hand, life is sacred. On the other hand, under the fourth commandment, he's invested authority in father and mother, and under the fourth commandment, he's invested authority in civil government to do what? To protect life. Okay? So uh, the nation that has an army that defends itself from foreign aggression and soldiers called upon to kill, that is not murder. That falls under uh, what's called just war. And it's actually God who is intervening. Remember, under the fourth commandment, Whose authority is being protected in the authority of father and mother? Whose authority is being protected in the authority of father and mother with the fourth commandment? Honor your father and your mother. God's authority. Whose authority is being protected in the civil realm? The authorities that exist have been established by God. It's God's authority being protected there. Okay. So um, now what Adolf Hitler did, that's not just war. That's unjust. It's one of the reasons why his regime came to an end. Susan, did you have your hand? Yes, self-defense is about protecting life. So, but the authority to do so grows out of the fourth commandment. This is the great, it, it's, it's almost like God gave us these ten commandments. The God who created all things, there is order and design. So that authority under the fourth commandment gives father and mother the right to protect life under the fifth commandment, or civil authority the right to protect life under the civil commandment. And when you abdicate your responsibility to do that under the fourth commandment, all matter of harm. So, for example, the rioting that's been going on in our country is simply untenable. It's the abdication of responsibility 
by Fourth Commandment authorities to protect life, and not only life, but what comes after the Sixth Commandment, property. You shall not steal. Okay? So there's, there's no justification. I'm mad about what happened here, so I'm going to go into June Breck's business and smash it and steal her stuff. Well, no, the authorities that exist have been established by God to protect both life and property. And this is the tradition of Western civilization for centuries and centuries, and it comes from the Judeo-Christian perspective of the law. And, and actually, this law that we're talking about that's articulated in the Ten Commandments is actually defining natural law. Okay? And isn't it true, even the unbeliever, if someone's coming into the, your house guns blazing and threatening your, your family, and you shoot and kill them, who, under normal circumstance, is going to condemn you for doing that? Under normal circumstance. But no one. Right? Or if you are happily married and someone commits an act of forcible rape, which is violation of the Sixth Commandment, does not the world even condemn that? Okay, Or normally, except in our times, it shows how, how pervasive evil has got where justice is turned upside down, where there's rhetoric that's actually justifying this violent rioting. You know? It, I mean, my, my ancestors all came over either during the Civil War against slavery, or after that. You know, but yet, the color of my skin, does that give the justification for some sort of you know, retribution and reparation and so forth on the part of those who feel like their great-great-great-grandparents were harmed? Uh, in no way. Natural law says that life is sacred. Natural, fifth commandment, natural law says the civil realm and parental authority is sacred. Fourth commandment, natural law says marriage is sacred. Natural law says uh, you shouldn't steal people's stuff. Seventh commandment, okay, pretty basic. All right, take a look at a few more of these terms here. Wally. Well, part of the natural law, let me just phrase it a little bit differently for you. Uh, natural law is the law of God written in our hearts. It's one of the reasons why we want to hold on to life. It's not right to want to hold on to life. It's, it's not right, it's not wrong to want to keep your stuff so that you can care for your family and so forth. Now, we can make an idol out of all of those things, but the desire to hang on to the life that God has given you is also a part of natural law. You can, in a certain sense, call it instinct, you know, in, in human beings. But it's why, and this is one of the points of connection sometimes with unbelievers. You know, you can, you can argue the truths of the Christian faith by appealing to what 
instinctively they know to be true or right or wrong. It doesn't always work because sin muddles our thinking as we have in our world today especially. All right, go to the fifth commandment here. So murder, following along Jesus' definition, is hatred, anger, or grudge-bearing against a person. That's where it begins, in the heart. Nobody willfully kills someone physically who doesn't first have some sort of hatred or bitterness or anger against them. Right? I love you, David. You know, I mean, that's not... Unless the person's totally insane and whacked out. So then it goes on to killing a a human life, not in self-defense. There's the key, Don. Not in self-defense, which includes abortion, euthanasia, which is sometimes referred to as, quote-unquote, mercy killing, and then unjust wars as opposed to just wars. Now, I've got two terms here that are in contrast. The the sanctity of life versus the quality of life. The sanctity of life is Christian biblical language that means that life is holy and sacred because God gave the gift of life. That means that, Kathy, your mother-in-law who has Alzheimer's at the Lutheran home in Milwaukee, that life is still holy and sacred even though the quality of that life may not be necessarily what any of us would want. But what the secular world does is allows the quality of a person's life to dictate whether or not the life should be preserved or not. Okay? So, if we determine that a life is not worth living then that becomes the justification for getting rid of that life. This is one of the things that is done with abortion. This life will not be very well served with the parents that the person has or the circumstance of poverty or what have you. Therefore, let us kill the child in its mother's womb because the quality of life we foresee for that child will not be very good. That puts us in the place of God, and it exalts quality of life over sanctity of life. One of the things that this discussion about the law has been attempting to point out is love is the fulfillment of the law, and therefore... Maybe there is something very sacred about caring for that elderly person who has dementia or Alzheimer's or in some other medical compromised position. And we as Christians would argue there is great value in extending love to that person in terms of the care that's given and so forth which is one of the insidious things about the times in which we're now living, when by force of law and policies of institutions, loved ones are kept from the elderly, 
there are some things that are more important, and the giving and receiving of love are one of those. I remember when President Silflo, uh, who went on to be with the Lord at the end of 2018, last day of 2018, um, earlier in that year, the year before, anyway, he called me one evening and said, can you help me? And of course I said, no, I'm busy. No, I didn't say that. But Irma, whose funeral is this afternoon, had fallen. And she had fallen because in the bathroom because she was uh, sick. She was sick with the stomach flu, which he also had. And he couldn't get her up. So hearing this, of course, I said, there's no way I can come and help you because some harm might come to me. Now, I didn't say that. So I went and I helped Irma off of the floor, got her into her um, wheelchair or walker and, and uh, back into the recliner and so forth, helped finish cleaning up and so forth. Now, you know what happened. I got the stomach flu that knocked me out of coffee break Bible study uh, the next time it occurred, you know, for that, for that week. The point is there are some things that are more important than my personal safety or my personal quality of life. I hate vomiting. How many of you enjoy it, you know? Um, I hate diarrhea. How many of you enjoy it, you know? Uh, none of us do, but we're called upon to do those things, right? Nurse Cratchit? I mean, Nurse Kathy? Yeah. Okay. Yes. All right. So, uh, quality of life versus sanctity of life. The sanctity of Irma's life, therefore, called me to love her and to love Pastor enough to go to their, to their aid. And this is actually a good thing, isn't it? So, we mentioned last week those who were willing, if it came down to it, to sacrifice their own lives at when the Twin Towers were attacked in hopes to rescue at least some. See, this is how love is the fulfillment of the law, and ultimately, that love and the sanctity of life is demonstrated here. You think, how was the quality of Jesus' life when he was nailed to the cross, when he was being flogged and beaten? or when he was rejected by his own countrymen and the members of his own family. You know, you say, you know, this is not worth it. I could be on vacation someplace instead of dealing with this scorn and this ridicule and now this horrible suffering. All right. Abortion, euthanasia, capital punishment, we've already talked about just war, when a nation goes to war to defend itself. And then finally, neighbor occurs here, anyone in need whom God has placed in your path, whether he is a friend or an enemy, a believer or an unbeliever. And uh, that ties in to the summary of the second table of the law, which says, love your neighbor as yourself. Or as I like to highlight, 
as yourself means in place of yourself, really, as Jesus laid down his life in place of us. Okay? Even though we're stretching out Didache this year to cover these things, there's still not enough, there's not enough time, is there? Okay? In the Lutheran Catechesis, you have a couple of examples of questions of self-examination under the fifth commandment. And those questions of self-examination help you to reflect further on the meaning and significance of the fifth commandment towards your own confession of sin. So how Christians should be taught to confess uh, under the fifth commandment. Let us pray, and then we'll go on to the sixth. Lord God, Heavenly Father, in the fifth commandment, you teach us that the gift of life is sacred and holy, and that it is to be protected from every form of murder. By the gift of your only begotten Son, you saved us from death and restored life with you. We give thanks to you for this gift and for our new life in Christ. Forgive us every form of murder or hatred, resentment, and refusing to forgive those who have sinned against us. Grant us your grace and mercy that we might let go of all grudges, sincerely forgive our enemies, and truly help and support our neighbor in every physical need. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. All right, now in the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew 5, if you go down to verse 27, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. There is the sixth commandment. And here again, just as in the case of the fifth commandment, where the Pharisees could say, I never committed murder because I never killed anybody. And according to that standard, I could say the same. At least I've never killed any human being. Uh, bugs and rabbits and things of that nature, but never a human being. So also here, I've never committed adultery because I've never had sexual relations with anyone but my wife. I am a righteous and holy man. Look at what he says. But I say to you, whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. With that kind of standard, who is without sin? No one. Except women, because they're allowed to lust after a man, but not the... No. Just because it says, whoever looks at a woman to lust after her does not exclude women. But it indicates here that lust or covetousness is where all sin begins. And when we get to the ninth and the 10th commandment, we'll talk about that further. But it is out of the desires of the heart that the actions of sin flow. But what Jesus is saying is we are still sinner even if we don't act upon the lust. We're still the murderer even if we don't act upon the bitterness, the anger, the hate. We're still adulterer even if we don't act upon the lust and covetousness. To which the reply should not be, well, who then can be saved? But rather, Lord, have mercy upon us. And so to be turned away from reliance upon ourselves to reliance upon the grace of God. All right. Now, if you take your Lutheran Catechesis book, 
And here on page 53, you have the sixth commandment. And there's something different about the explanation to the sixth commandment. And I want to see if you can figure it out. What is the sixth commandment? You shall not commit adultery. What does this mean? We should fear and love God so that we lead a sexually pure and decent life in what we say and do, and husband and wife love and honor each other. Now, the old language, instead of sexually pure, had the word chaste, which is uh, the purity of mind and heart and words and actions over against those of the opposite sex. So it's in the explanation. Do you notice anything different? We should fear and love God so that we lead a chaste and decent life in what we say and do, and husband and wife love and honor each other. Polly? It's, it's, it's all positive. It's all positive. And this is a fantastic thing. The reason this is so is especially because of the context of Luther's day in which marriage was not actually held up as a good and honorable thing. Why not? Lots of reasons. Uh, the monastic life, the real holy life, was to disdain, uh, separate yourself from married life, ordinary life, and serve God by disassociating with the world and going into the monastery. Another thing was the idea that original sin was sexual intercourse. How many of you have ever heard that? Never heard that? Well, it was, it was a t you've heard that, David, right? Original sin, as in the Middle Ages, this was a thought. The act of sexual intercourse between a husband and wife was viewed as original sin. Well, original sin is passed on through the act of sexual intercourse when there's conception. But original sin refers to Adam's original sin of rebelling against God, which made him a sinner. And the state of being a sinner is indeed passed on at the time of conception. Psalm 51, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. So if sin is passed on at the time of conception, this is why they thought that being married and having sex in marriage was a sinful thing. Isn't that weird? Yeah. All right. So what Luther wanted to do is say, no, no, no. As the apostle says in Hebrews, the marriage bed is undefiled. Okay? So there's the giving and receiving of marital love and the celebration of that love in the pleasure of the physical union in marriage. This is a good gift, and out of it, God produces life. So these fourth, fifth, and sixth commandments go together in a wonderful trinity, if you think about it. God stands behind the office of father and mother. God stands behind the office of father and mother. The act of having children, fifth commandment, life, is called procreation. Now that doesn't mean professional creation. That means that you are alongside of and with God He's allowing us in our marriages as fathers and mothers to bring life into the world. Okay? 
And then the sixth commandment, you shall not commit adultery, protects that one flesh union through which life is brought into the world by God and by which he wants that life cared for under the fourth commandment. So that's a wonderful trinity of, of commandments there where again, as we've been saying, God protects his good gifts. Here, the gift of marriage. Because marriage between a man and a woman who become one flesh is holy. No wonder we should lead a chaste and decent life and husband and wife love and honor each other because that is a holy life and it's the best kind of life and union for the bringing up of children under the fifth commandment, the sanctity of life, and God has invested father and mother with authority under the fourth commandment. But I repeat myself, but I'm repeating myself deliberately so you see this wonderful uh, trinity of commandments uh, that God describes his good gifts and by which he wants them protected. So Polly is quite right here. This is part of the reason why Luther set the sixth commandment entirely in positive terms, that we lead a chaste and decent life in what we say and do, and husband and wife love and honor each other. So what did this priest do in the 16th century? This priest who was sworn to celibacy said, celibacy, forced celibacy by the church is against God's law. It's against the natural order. And you do not sin to break those vows of forced celibacy. Quite the opposite. Okay? And so he married a nun. Who? Katharina von Bora. And they did not sin, Kathy, in doing this. We've got to purge you of all medievalisms, okay, okay? It was a good thing, and they had children, and they had a life together, and they were engaged in the community in love for God and love for the neighbor. Is that why pastors get married? Absolutely, absolutely. And pastors who are allowed to marry by God's, uh, by God's word uh, are also in a good position as husbands and as fathers to understand the intricacies of marriage and family. Then I take it as a Catholic priest, and you're saying that they cannot marry? Correct. That's wrong. That is correct. That's why you're a Lutheran now, Kathy. That's why you're, that's why you're a Lutheran now. Yes. Okay? Now, if you, look, if you look at the Sixth Commandment, so you have terms there adultery, fornication, homosexuality, sexuality, chaste, marriage, one flesh, infidelity. Um, adultery is typically a term that describes having sexual relations with someone who is not your spouse or another person's spouse and so forth, or someone who is married having relations with someone who is not their spouse, whether they're married or not. Fornication is an umbrella term. It comes from a Greek word, and you'll recognize the Greek word with some English words you know. Porneia. Porneia. Pornography. Uh, fornication comes from that Greek word porneia, from which we get pornography. And what would you say, it's, fornication is any sexual sin whatsoever. 
what would you say characterizes then fornication? What's that? Self-pleasure in some way, shape, manner, or form, which is true also of adultery, really. I just want them to be happy, you know. So there, it is curved in. It is selfish and self-centered. And actually, one of the things that I try to teach couples in premarital catechesis is to change their thinking from the way the world talks about uh, sexual relations. The world talks about sexual relations in terms of what is going to please me. And then someone would say, well, she's not meeting my needs. Okay? She's now in menopause. She no longer desires the same kind of intimacy that we used to have. Therefore, I'm going to find someone that will meet my needs. That's the world's way of handling it. Even when you have two vibrant young people, a man and a woman coming together in marriage, they too can fall prey to the trap of seeing the sexual intimacy of marriage as being about the service of self. And as opposed to allowing the gospel, yes, the gospel of Jesus' sacrificial love for his bride, the church, to inform the way in which they view sexual relationships with their spouse. Okay? So to see oneself as the husband giving of himself in love to his bride. And I've often said, and I underscore this in premarital catechesis and also with couples that are having difficulty in their marriage, because it's, we tend to also isolate sexual intimacy from the other aspects of marriage. And we shouldn't do that. Sexual intimacy becomes the climax, no pun intended, but fruition of the communication and the giving and receiving of love in the entire uh, marital relationship. So I will say to them, to be masculine in marriage and what gives the man in marriage as the masculine one the greatest pleasure and satisfaction is when his love is received by his bride. This is part of how we are designed from before the fall into sin. That to be masculine is to give of myself to my bride without counting the cost. And what I try to tell the couples is this is what actually gives you a sense of self-worth and satisfaction. Conversely, to be feminine in marriage is to allow your husband to love you, which includes, since the fall into sin, to forgive you, to shoulder your burdens, to make sacrifices for you. You see how they go together. Now, in the home with children, there's a lot of giving that the mom does, but her capacity to give is fueled by her reception of her husband's love. You follow that, Kathy, right? Yeah, how Jim loved you by bearing your burdens, caring for you, forgiving you, covering over your failings and shortcomings. And then that which characterized your whole life, 
was then celebrated in the marriage bed, in the, in the free giving and receiving by the husband and by the bride. Now, we could talk more about those sorts of things, but under the Sixth Commandment, I think it is a great insight to see the positive way in which the Catechism treats it, uh, number one, and especially to highlight that even here, the gospel informs the relationship, okay? Which means then, if, let's say, that example that I gave you, you know, my wife is not satisfying my needs anymore because she's gone through menopause and she has no interest and so forth, there are so many ways to, quote unquote, make love, which are not necessarily in the, quote unquote, conventional way of thinking. So to broaden the horizon of seeing, you know, someone like um, James when he was, had a stroke and so forth, I mean, the giving and receiving of love between the two of them that involved the compassion, the conversation, you know, the holding of hands. See, so life changes, doesn't it? From when we were 20-something to when we were 80-something, okay? But the love does not. It just takes on different forms in the way the husband gives and the wife receives. And as long as the husband thinks of it in terms of my needs being met, he will never truly be happy. And unless the wife understands herself as receiving, she too will lose out on contentment. He really does love me just the way I am. And that is a reflection of Christ's and his bride, the church. The church receives her Savior's love and is delighted with it. That's why the Bible says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. All right. We will highlight uh, further things as time goes on. Uh, we will now continue with the confession of sins in preparation for the Lord's body and blood. stand. Beloved in the Lord, let us draw near with a true heart and confess our sins unto God our Father, beseeching him in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to grant us forgiveness. Our help is in the name of the Lord. I said I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord. O Almighty God, merciful Father, I, a poor, miserable sinner, confess unto you all my sins and iniquities with which I have ever offended you and justly deserved your temporal and eternal punishment. But I am heartily sorry for them and sincerely repent of them. And I pray you of your boundless mercy and for the sake of the holy, innocent, bitter sufferings and death of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, 
to be gracious and merciful to me, a poor sinful being. Upon this, your confession, I, by virtue of my office as a called and ordained servant of the word, announce the grace of God unto all of you, and in the stead and by the command of my Lord Jesus Christ, I forgive you all your sins, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we, are unworthy servants, give you humble and hearty thanks for all the goodness and loving kindness that you bestow on us. We praise you for our creation, preservation, and all the blessings of this life. But above all, we bless you for your boundless love in the redemption of the world by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, for the means of grace and for the hope of glory. We implore you to give us a right understanding of all your mercies, that our hearts may ever be deeply thankful, and that we may show forth your praise with both our lips and our lives. Direct our lives in ways of holiness and righteousness all our days, that we may enjoy the testimony of a good conscience and the hope of your favor. Be sustained and comforted in every time of trouble, and finally be received into your everlasting kingdom. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. The Lord be with you. And also Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is truly good, right, and salutary that we should at all times and in all places give thanks to you, Holy Lord, Almighty Father, everlasting God, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Therefore, with angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven, we laud and magnify your glorious name, evermore praising you and saying, Holy, 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 Lord God of Sodom. Heaven and earth are full of thy glory. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. King of all creation, for you have had mercy on us and given your only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. In your righteous judgment, you condemned the sin of Adam and Eve, who ate the forbidden fruit, and you justly barred them and all their children from the tree of life. Yet, in your great mercy, you promised salvation by a second Adam, your son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, and made his cross a life-giving tree for all who trust in him. We give you thanks for the redemption you have prepared for us through Jesus Christ. Grant us your Holy Spirit that we may faithfully eat and drink of the fruits of his cross 
and receive the blessings of forgiveness, life and salvation that come to us in his body and blood. Hear us as we pray in his name and as he has taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. This cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The peace of the Lord be with you always. Amen. O Christ, thou Lamb of God, that takest away the sin of the world, have mercy upon us. O Christ, thou Lamb of God, that takest away the sin of the world, have mercy upon us. O Christ, thou Lamb of God, that takest away the sin of the world. Grant us thy peace. Amen. Please come forward in groups of about ten.
O oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Blessed Savior Jesus Christ, you have given yourself to us in this holy sacrament. Keep us in your faith and favor, that we may live in you even as you live in us. May your body and blood preserve us in the true faith to life everlasting. Hear us for your name's sake, for you live and reign with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Let us bless the Lord. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Amen.